Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you here this morning, be able to open God's Word with you together. Um, If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 is where we, we, we will be looking at this morning. Now, as you're opening to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, I think it would be helpful to provide some uh, context for the book uh, as we are settled in it this morning um, and its placement within the whole of Scripture as well. So many may know Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. It's part of what's known as the, the Pentateuch or the, the Torah, uh, the law, um, or the five books of Moses. Now, the Pentateuch cre- traces the creation of the, of the world, of mankind, of Abraham and his descendants, of uh, Moses and the people of Israel and their deliverance from Egypt. And this is where Deuteronomy uh, situates uh, the people of Israel. And while these books are separate in our Bibles, it's important to, to realize that they really should be considered as a whole, um, taken as a whole because they go together as a unit. And so we'll want to keep that in mind this morning. Uh, Deuteronomy, it's commonly referred to as the second giving of the law. Uh, that's found in Exodus 20. Um, but I want to propose it, it can't be simply reduced to a mere repetition of the law, but it's uh, more full than that. And Deuteronomy itself, in its opening chapter Chapter 1, verse 5, really gives the purpose statement of the book, that it is namely to expound the law. So, to summarize quickly, Deuteronomy is not simply a repetition of the law, but it's this further explanation of the law in more full and rich detail for Israel. Which then brings us to chapter 6, where we will be this morning. Um, chapter 6 um, is really a expounding of the first commandment, uh, you could say. We get that in Deuteronomy 5, the repeating of the Ten Commandments. And starting in chapter 6, you have this expounding of those commandments. So chapter 6 really addresses what does it look like to have no other gods before Yahweh. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And that is what Moses will address in chapter 6. And we could summarize as this, which will provide a summary statement for our time here this morning as well. It could be summarized as this. Because there is only one true God, we must love him with all of our being and teach our children to do the same. Now let's read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, so that it is clearly in our minds. Hear now God's holy and infallible word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we 
pause again to give you thanks for your mercies are new each morning. Lord, we are thankful that we can gather together as the body of Christ to sing praises to you, to hear from your word, to confess our sins to you, and to know that there is grace to be found in Christ. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we would pray for wisdom, for insight and understanding. Lord, help us by your spirit to understand what it is that you have clearly spoken. And Lord, we pray that the words that I speak this morning would carry with them the blessing of the Holy Spirit as he takes them and applies them to each and every person here. Lord, may Christ be glorified in your word. We pray these things in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Nehemiah Institute is an organization that tests biblical worldview. They do so through a test known as the Peers Test, uh, which they've been administering for a few decades now. So what have they found in the many years and decades that they have been administering this test that uh, seeks to gauge uh, the biblical worldview of Christians? Well, of professing Christians here in America, they have found that only 10% actually possess a biblical worldview. 10%. The researchers such as Christian Smith, the Barna Group, and Lifeway have found that anywhere from 70 to 88% of young people raised in Christian churches leave the faith by the end of their freshman year in college. 70 to 88%. I want you to let those numbers sink in for a second there. Those numbers are sobering. So what do we do? What do we do with this information? What do we do with these numbers? Do we simply throw our hands up in disbelief, saying that there's no way it can possibly be that bad? Do we give up on the mission of the church and making disciples? On the contrary, let us use this data as a wake-up call as a call to action and a call to faithfulness. And I believe that our text here this morning in Deuteronomy gives us that plan of action. It gives us this battle plan that we can take into the trenches of everyday home life and everyday church life. This must be the path forward if we're to stem the tide of those statistics. We must commit ourselves to a multi-generational vision and view of family discipleship both within the home and within the church. So what does this look like? Well, I believe, again, our text this morning adequately addresses that. So let's begin looking at our text for the answer that God's Word sufficiently provides. So this first point in committing ourselves to this multi-generational vision of faithfulness and discipleship, could be summarized as this. Um, 
that we are to believe and confess that there is only one true God. Look at verse 4 with me of Deuteronomy 6, where it states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is known as the, the Shema, the great confession of the oneness of God, of the Jewish people. Uh, Jews would confess this on a daily basis as they would um, wake up and uh, before they would uh, go to sleep. Uh, Christ himself and his disciples uh, would have uh, recited these words on a daily basis. And these words, they serve as a a type of pledge of allegiance for the people of Israel. Um, Back in high school, uh, quite frankly, I'm not sure if they do this anymore, um, but I know when, when I was back in high school, which is 10 years ago now, um, which seems crazy. Um, yes, I'm getting old. Um, we would begin the day with, with saying the Pledge of Allegiance um, to the flag. Uh, well, this served as Israel's Pledge of Allegiance, you could say. They were pledging allegiance to Yahweh alone as the one and true God, declaring to everyone who the living and true God is. And remember, Moses is writing here in a context of a, a people who were tempted to fall into idolatry. Uh, for those of us who are familiar with the Old Testament, we know, unfortunately, Israel's propensity to fall into idolatry, whether it was the incident of the golden calf or the unfortunate history of, of Israel turning aside to other gods, such as Baal. And so, in light of that, in light of this propensity that Moses knew about the people of Israel, he begins here with this great confession. And one of the most important truths in all of Scripture, that being absolute monotheism. There is only one true God, period. That's the starting point for which Moses begins. And this is a central part of our theology as well. Uh, We confess in our doctrinal statement. We worked through it uh, about a year ago or so. One of our doctrinal distinctives is we confess in the Trinity. Uh, We believe we are Trinitarian monotheists. We believe there is only one true God who exists in three co-equal and co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is a central part of our theology as well. Now, I can imagine that some of you are probably thinking, okay, what does this have to do with this multi-generational view of faithfulness, of discipleship that I had mentioned earlier? Um, we all know we're all Trinitarian monotheists here. Well, I would, I would propose to you that, again, this is the, the doctrinal starting point, the foundation upon which our mission begins. We simply cannot avoid the central place that doctrine plays in the Christian life. Uh, Theology matters, and it matters greatly in how we raise and disciple our children. Again, if we're to teach our children to know and love God, we have to know this God to whom we're teaching our children about. We need to be well acquainted with him as he's revealed himself in his word. So we can't avoid this doctrinal starting point here. Now, most of us probably don't need to be convinced of absolute monotheism. Uh, again, we're all 
Christians. We profess it in our doctrinal statement, you're probably saying. So, again, what does this have to do with um, this multi-generational vision? Well, one of the points of application that connects us to ancient Israel and that I think is helpful in remembering the context of Deuteronomy uh, is that, again, Israel is about to go into a pagan land where they worship pagan gods and to avoid falling into that pagan idolatry, they're told there is only one true God. Your devotion is to be to him and to him alone. And so for us, Today, one of the points of application for today, people look at our society around us and they say, look at where the society is going. It's increasingly moving away from Christianity. The, the, the culture is becoming increasingly hostile to the church and God's people. What do we do in this increasingly secular age? God's got an answer for that. And it's right here in Deuteronomy. His answer is you dig down and you plant roots and you believe the truth and confess that there is only one true God and you disciple your children after that one true God. Live lives holy unto the Lord and teach your children the glories of Christ and his gospel. We must love God with all of our being, which brings us naturally to our second point today, that we must love God with all of our, be- with all of our being. Look at verse 5 with me of Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Now, this commandment will most likely look familiar to a number of us, uh, if you're familiar and have read Uh, the New Testament. This is the first great commandment that's given by Christ in Matthew 22. Uh, In there, he kind of adds this dimension of the mind. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, And it's right here, this commandment, that is to summarize the core commitment of God's covenant community, namely, love. Love is the great summary, the great commandment that's to characterize God's people. And it's not merely a love that's expressed solely by words, but it's a love that is to consume one's entire being. Again, notice the language there of heart, of your soul, and of your might. This is language that is designed to encapsulate the whole being of a person. There's nothing exempt from this love that we're commanded to give. There's no area of your life where you can say, well, not there, God. You know, I'll I'll love you with everything over here, but that that one's with me. No, there's all-encompassing. All of life is to be consumed by love for God. And this was true of Israel under the Old Covenant, and it's true of us as the church under the New Covenant covenant. Now I want to say a a quick word here as we're thinking about the command to love God. We want to be careful not to confuse the law and the gospel. But what do I mean by those terms? 
Well, simply stated, the law says, do this and live. But the gospel says, it is done so that you may live. To put it even more simply, you could say that the law says, do, but the gospel says, done. The law focuses upon the perfect requirement and righteous requirement of the law, of God as he's expressed himself in the commandments, and the gospel focuses upon the perfect and finished work of Christ for us. And if there's nothing else you remember from my sermon this morning, that would be a good point to remember. And to help us demonstrate... Um, this law-gospel distinction. About a year and a half ago, we were celebrating the, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and we preached a number of sermons that highlighted the five solas of the Reformation, along with a number of reformers. Well, uh, Martin Luther was one of those reformers, and early on in his uh, reforming career, he began developing this law-gospel distinction that he saw within the Scriptures. And it was in April of 1518 at the Heidelberg Disputation where he put forth a number of uh, theses. And you can really see Luther's thought beginning to develop here. Um, He writes this in Theses 26. The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. We must be careful to avoid the idea that because we love God so strongly that he will accept us. Brothers and sisters, do not put that weight upon your shoulders thinking that if you can just love God more perfectly or better that he will somehow accept you. You will put a weight upon your shoulders that will crush you. in fact, none of us, none of us lives up to this, this commandment. None of us here has loved God perfectly for even a second in our lives. And so what do we do with that? We fall short every day. The, the law says you must love God perfectly with all of your being. And for those of us, we know our own sin. We know we fall short of that every single day. So what do we do? We stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. But this is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel says that there is one who has loved God perfectly with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved God perfectly on our behalf when we could not. He perfectly fulfilled this commandment. You look at verse 5 and you don't see Christ, I would encourage you to look at it again. Because verse 5, that is Christ. Christ has loved God perfectly with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He obeyed the law perfectly for us so that we would have a perfect righteousness, his righteousness if you've not turned to Christ in faith and repentance, I plead with you to do so. The law 
bears down upon you heavily. And there is no escape from its condemnation except for Christ. And I want to say a word here about the position of the law being written on the heart and its connection to the new covenant. Uh, If you notice in verse 6, Moses writes, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. There's an important part here of the positioning of the law as it's put on our hearts. I would encourage you to to turn to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. That's a little lengthy, but it's an important section because it talks about how we as believers are to think about the law and its placement upon our hearts and its relevance for our lives today. So Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no reason or occasion to look for a second. For he he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful Toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So, this love for God that we're commanded to give in this verse is, as we saw in Hebrews, is to be given out of the overflow of a heart that has been changed by God. Ones whose sins have been forgiven and that heart of stone has been taken out and a heart of flesh has been given. That's the motivating, driving force for our love for God and for our discipleship of our children. The law being written on the heart is not a condition to try and enter the new covenant, but it's a blessing of the new covenant. And so the obedience we give to God is not from a, a mere cold legalism, but it's out of a posture of love and gratitude. And love is this motivating factor. Love for God, love for Christ, is what motivates to disciple our children. I've got a, a quick caveat here, and I might get in trouble for saying this, but if you're raising your children for mere behavior, for well-behaved children who get good grades so they can get into a good college and get a good job, repent. We're called to, as parents, strive for something higher than that. 
If we were destined for this life only, that argument might have some weight to it. But we are destined to spend an eternity with Christ, worshiping Him. And so if there's any motivation for wanting to disciple your children apart from this love for God and Christ to see your children become more like Christ, if there's any other motivation, repent of that motivation. It's this point here that serves as kind of the hinge to our next set of verses, Um, this love for God that overflows into our discipleship and how we raise our children. Uh, And again, the commitment to multi-generational family discipleship and worship is to be born out of this love for God. That's the motivating factor. Again, if if we love God, we will want to disciple our children to the God that we love. And so this is the third point of our text this morning. We must teach our children to know and love God. But how do we do this? What are some ways that we can do this? The first point in how we can do this, there's, there's three points that, I wanna, that I'll address. The first point is to teach the word at home. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Notice the word there, diligently. You shall teach these words diligently to your children. There is to be this very intentional and very disciplined instruction that is given in the home. And there are a number of ways that, that we can do this. And I am, as Alan said in his prayer, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge that I'm laying before each of you this morning. One of the ways in which we can do this is through regular family worship. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, what does that look like exactly? I'm so glad you asked. Family worship, if you want to boil it down to what some of its fundamental core components are, there's three things. Read, pray, and sing. Read the scriptures together. Pray together as a family and sing. Now I know there are some of you, probably the men more so, who are thinking, okay, Jeff, I can get with you on the, the reading and the praying thing, but that last one, I'm not so sure about the singing part. Um, let me tell you, in our home, Joelle has all of the musical gifts of singing. I got none of it. So let me just say, if you stand next to me during public worship, let me just apologize in advance right now because I am sorry, it will not be very good. I have not been very gifted with singing abilities but we sing to the Lord. We sing to the Lord because it's pleasing in His sight. And so sing as a family together. What other resources are available for us to use? I would encourage each one of you, one of the most beneficial resources that I have used 
in my personal devotions and in family worship is catechisms. These documents that are uh, formed in a question and answer type format to give instruction in the faith have been used for centuries for Christian instruction. Now, unless you think that catechisms are not very Baptist, uh, I would challenge that thought. Uh, from the earliest emergence of the Baptists, one of the first things that they did was create catechisms because they wanted to teach their people the basics of the faith. And so whether it's the Orthodox Catechism of 1680 or the Baptist Catechism of 1693 or a Catechism for Girls and Boys, which is an excellent catechism for children, I could share it with you if you really want more of it, or Spurgeon's Catechism, the great Charles Spurgeon, used catechisms to instruct the people of his congregation. And so I would encourage you to take up these great resources. Another resource uh, that we as the elders have been working on is a a family worship guide. Uh, It actually is on the the Welcome Center along with uh, a book out there by Jason Halopoulos. It's entitled A Neglected Grace. Take these resources. Uh, the, The Family Worship Guide gives a brief outline of what a night of family worship in your home could look like. And it follows that simple format of reading, praying, and singing. And then on the back, there's some questions that you can ask for various age groups uh, to get conversations going around God's Word. And I would encourage you to uh, utilize these great resources that are available. Again, it's on the Welcome Center, or you can speak to me afterwards. I'd be happy to share these excellent resources with you. Now, a possible objection that I want to raise and address is for those who might think, okay, I see the importance of this, I see it in Deuteronomy, but isn't that just an Old Testament command that Israel was supposed to do in the life of the community? I would argue no. The verse, the, the verse we read earlier this morning that Jason read, Ephesians 6, where we find the New Testament equivalent of this text. And there's an even more explicit command given in this text. So let's read the, the text again. It's worthy of our consideration. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and you may, that you may live long in the land. Verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul makes it absolutely clear that fathers have the specific responsibility to raise and disciple their children. Can you give it to someone else to do? No. It's your job as fathers It's our job as fathers to disciple our children. God's word is clear. It's sufficient for this task. Fathers who don't feel equipped to do this, God sent those children home with you. He knew what he was doing. And he has equipped you to do this. Read, pray, and sing together. Now, a second point of how we can teach our children to know and love God is, firstly, we had teach the word at home. 
And secondly, we have live the word at home. Look at verse 7, um, second half of verse 7. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and shall, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. When it comes to the relationship between education and discipleship, more is often caught than it is taught. I'm sure for parents who have young children, you know this all too well. Uh, it's really neat. Judah's getting to an age now where he's starting to mimic and mirror some of the behaviors that Joel and I do. And it's neat to see him catching on to these things. And in light of that, that's why it may, that makes this so much more important of why we need to live the Word of God at home. And it makes it so much clearer why this love for God that we're commanded to give is to permeate all aspects of our lives. So, this love for God, again, is to be all of life, both within the home and outside of the home. Joel Beakey puts a particular emphasis upon this and upon the responsibility that parents play in this role when he says this, Next to the Bible, your life is the most important book your children will ever read. Next to the Bible, your life as parents is the most important book that your children will ever read. If we merely teach the Word at home, but we don't live the Word at home, we are hypocrites. And our children will see that. And I'm going to be honest with you, this is difficult. I don't do this perfectly. But my prayer is that God would continue to work in my life to make me more like Christ and that my children would see that. Parents, we must teach by example because our children are watching. We must do this. And the third point here of how we're to teach our children to know and love God is to mark our homes as set apart to the Lord. Look at verse 9 with me. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In doing this, the Israelites would have been demonstrating and reminding themselves of their allegiance to Yahweh. Whenever they went out from their home and whenever they came in, to their homes. They would have been reminded that their ultimate allegiance was to Yahweh, the one and true God. And so we too must mark our homes. It's to be set apart to God so that everyone who goes there knows this family worships and serves the living and true God. Mark your home as set apart to the Lord. So what does this look like in our church? I want to draw a few points of application here. What does this multi-generational vision look like in our particular community, in our um, church context? 
What does it look like for each age demographic? What does it look like for each marital situation or parental situation? Regardless of the particular circumstances, this text applies to you this morning. Now, I'll admit I am not going to be like a certain Puritan pastor who had 68 points of application. And I'm sure you're all breathing a huge sigh of relief. I only have 65. It's okay. (laughs) Just kidding. I don't have that many. But I do want to be thorough because I think it's important to see and to grasp a hold of this vision and where it applies for each and every one of us this morning. So I'm going to run through a number of situations and try to provide some encouragement in those particular life circumstances. Now, if you're newly married and you're without children, I would recommend start this practice as soon as you can. Start Family worship can be done with a family of two. You are a family. And so start doing this together so that if the Lord would so choose to bless you with children, you can go from a family of two to a family of three and just naturally move into this. And if the Lord does not bless you with children at this particular moment, still do this. I can think of none better marriage enrichment than to worship together as a couple. I can think of none better marriage enrichment tool than that. So I would encourage you to do that. Now, if you're married with young kids, I realize there's going to be some particular challenges here. You might need to keep family worship on the shorter side. Ten minutes is fine, but if it needs to be shorter, that's what it needs to be. Uh, But I would encourage you to start this as they're young. They may not know or understand what's going on, but there are patterns being formed. Just last night, one of the most exciting things when we finished family worship and we were singing the doxology, Judah was mouthing the first part of the doxology. He's only one year old, and yet there's this pattern that's being formed that, okay, when family worship's done, we we sing this song, and then that's done. And for him to be able to grow up immersed in this atmosphere What a blessing that is. Now, if you're married with teens and you've never done this before, I realize what I have laid out to you may sound like the impossible task. But I would encourage you fathers, go home and tonight get on your knees before your wife and your children and say, I have failed to lead in this regard. Will you forgive me? But no more. We are starting a new path this this evening and we are forging a legacy of family worship. If you're married with children who are older and are out of the house and you've not done this, you can still do this as a family. Pray for your children. Whenever you see them, whether it's around a meal, try and cultivate these things. There's still much work to be done. If you're married with grandchildren, What a sweet blessing that would be to take that grandchildren upon your lap, to open God's word, and to read together, to pray together, and to sing together. Again, there is much work to be done. Now, if you're older, you're married without kids, whether they are far away um, and not in our church context in particular, you can disciple a younger couple. There are dozens 
of young, newly married, or new families in our congregation that are desperate to be discipled by an older couple in the Lord. In case you can't tell, I'm one of them. (laughs) Disciple a younger, newly married couple in the ways of the Lord. Now, if you're a single parent, this is a particularly difficult task for you. I realize that. If there is any aid that we as elders can do, whether it's encouragement, modeling it, let us know. But I would encourage you to begin this work. If you have older children, I encourage them to begin leading in worship as well in your family. And for the children here, my exhortation, my encouragement to you is to honor your parents. We read earlier in Paul that children are commanded to honor your parents. Follow them. Listen to them. Make their labor a joy to them. Now, for some children here who have grown up in a Christian home where this has been done, and you may not sense the significance of this, for someone like myself who did not grow up in a Christian home, the, the holy envy that I have at times, what I would have given to have grown up in a home where the Word of God was opened regularly, and where, where prayer was a central part of our family life, what I would have given. You may not see or realize the implications of the importance of this now, but I think you will when you grow up. And so I would say, listen, follow your parents in this. Now, if you're a single man or a single woman here, this text applies equally to you as well. If you're a young man, find an older man who can disciple you to the pattern of Deuteronomy 6. If you're a young woman, find an older woman who can disciple you in these things. If you're an older man, find a younger man who you can disciple, who you can pour your life into. If you're an older woman, find a younger woman who you can disciple and thus fulfill Titus 2 ministry. This is what Paul exhorts in Titus. Older men discipling younger men. Older women discipling younger women. It's a beautiful picture of God's people because there are people everywhere, everywhere, who need to be discipled. Now, if you're a family here who has never done this before, I would encourage you to start tonight. Make this a priority in your home and begin this practice tonight. If you're a family that has tried this, but you've lost consistency, I would encourage you to take up that mantle once more to start again. Make this a priority in your home. Do it after a meal or something where the family is together, but make it a priority of your home life. And if you're a family that is already doing this, and you have been for some time, be encouraged to continue in that work. Stand firm and continue going forward and encourage others to do so as well. You know how rewarding this work is, but you also know how challenging it can be at times. And we need to encourage one another to do this in our homes. I need encouragement to do this in my home. 
And so I would say encourage others to do this and see the blessings that they uh, that this brings. Now, as I conclude, the charge that I want to leave you with today is to devote yourself to regular family discipleship and worship, that you would be committed to this vision of multi-generational faithfulness and discipleship. People often talk about what kind of legacy, what kind of inheritance they want to leave behind for their children and their grandchildren. I can think of none better than this, that you regularly led your family in worship, that you brought your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and that you forged a legacy for multi-generational faithfulness, that you changed your family tree. I can think of a none greater legacy inheritance than that. The great Puritan pastor Matthew Henry writes on this very subject and he says this, If therefore our houses be houses of the Lord, we shall for that reason love home, reckoning our daily devotion the sweetest of our daily delights and our family worship the most valuable of our family comforts. A church in the house will be a good legacy Nay, it will be a good inheritance to be left to your children after you. Parents, don't miss this incredible opportunity that you have been given. Don't miss or pass up this incredible gift that God has given to you to disciple your children. The final words that I want to leave you with this morning are from the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 15. And I leave this as a solemn charge to each of us here and to the men in particular. Men, we've got work to do, so let's get to it. Joshua writes this, And if it be evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you recognizing the immense challenge, the immense gift that you've given to us in your word this morning. Lord, we realize that apart from your Holy Spirit, we cannot do these things. So Lord, we pray that you would be merciful to our iniquities, that you would be gracious to our shortcomings when we do not do these things consistently or well. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would enable each of us here to be devoted to this multi-generational vision of discipleship. That we would find someone whom we can sit under and learn from as Timothy did with Paul. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. 
that we can find rest for our souls. And so, Lord, I pray that throughout this week you would take this word and apply it by your Holy Spirit to each and every one of us here. Conform us in more into the image of Christ. We pray these things in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.